Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Strong entrepreneurs, they let the losses go. They don't hold on to them. They don't harbor. They don't get depressed about it. They keep moving forward because they know that, you know, when one door closes, there's another one opening. Every wave is different. You're not going to ride that same exact wave. Some are smooth and you're going to ride it well, but some will dump you into the, you know, into the surf. And that's the exact same thing. You just got to know that you ride that wave as it comes. And that's very much how the restaurant business is because every day is different. Literally every single day, something will come up. It's not just overnight sensation. There's no such thing as overnight success unless you catch the lotto. I mean, I don't know of any entrepreneur out there that's done really, really well and has been really successful on a big level that didn't pay their dues. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd. Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features restaurateur Justin Anthony. You can find him on Instagram at justinanthony10. That's the number one zero. I wanted to have Justin on the show, not just because he's a hugely successful restaurateur. He owns the top restaurants where we live here in Atlanta, but because he's been able to stay at the top of this game in an industry that isn't very forgiving. Justin is the founder of the South African hospitality group, True Story Brands. Justin spearheads the group's focus on sharing the lifestyle and experience of South Africa through its four restaurants, 10 Degrees South, Yebo, Cape Dutch, and Biltong Bar. My wife and I first met Justin 10 years ago and have watched him grow over the past decade. But it wasn't until recently that I found out that he wound up in the restaurant game after he had an injury as a professional soccer player. And what I love about his story is how he picked himself up after his injury and pivoted into an entirely different industry and then dominated that industry. This interview was amazing for me. I learned so much. We talked about what it was like growing up in South Africa during apartheid, how he views himself as being in the entertainment business and not the restaurant business, and what playing hard looks like for him. Be sure to take a screenshot of the episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and Justin and let us know what you thought of it. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with with Justin Anthony. Justin, welcome to the show. Good to be here. So, you know, I've been looking forward to doing this interview for some time with you, and I'm super excited that we get to do it live in your amazing restaurant. So thank you for taking the time. So here's where I thought we would begin. I thought we would begin with where you're from, which is South Africa, because I really believe that that informs who we are. So could you describe what your environment was like growing up in South Africa during apartheid? Yeah, so I grew up during apartheid in Johannesburg, South Africa. My experience was a little different to most because I grew up playing soccer, which is predominantly a black sport, if you will, in South Africa. And so at an early age, I was going into what they call the townships and, and playing with, with kids, you know, of various backgrounds. And so my interaction, you know, was completely different to most you know, growing up, you didn't really know what apartheid meant. It's only when you, when you got older, like teenager and that, that you understood what was going on and the craziness behind it. But 
I was fortunate in that, uh, you know, I got to experience the um, hardships of the people of South Africa at a, at a young age and, and seeing how they live because I was playing soccer with them in those environments and realized, you know, that obviously it was not a cool thing that was going on. So how would you say that growing up around apartheid affected how you see things, let's say, in your life today? In other words, were there any lessons learned that helped shape you for who you are today? Uh, yeah, I think in, in general. I mean, I just don't think that, you know, we're all human beings. I don't think that one nationality, race, color, religion should be superior to another um, anywhere in the world. And I was fortunate that, you know, not only did I get to experience, you know, South Africa during those years, but South Africa also had a lot of multicultural nationalities from all over the world that lived there, you know, so I got to interact with, you know, not only, you know, black kids during apartheid, but Indian kids, um, you know, there was a lot of Portuguese, Greek, Jewish, Lebanese, a lot of cultures in South Africa. But when you were growing up, your environments, was it mostly segregated, let's say? In other words, before you got into, you know, playing soccer later in life, was there a clear separation between the way you were raised and what you started to see when you started mixing with people? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I mean, we were, you know, middle class, if you will, you know, didn't come from a wealthy family by any stretch, but definitely, you know, in school, you know, you know, I went to predominantly white school. There was maybe a few Chinese people, but no, no, no real color, you know, whatsoever. But I started playing soccer at a young age. I mean, I was like six, seven years old and was playing with black kids at that age. So, you know, the school environment and where I lived, you know, wasn't present, but I played soccer with these kids a lot. Let's talk about soccer. You didn't just play soccer. You, uh, you know, you didn't play it recreationally in soccer. You turned pro at 17, if I understand correctly. Um, and I believe that you played for the giant Jomo Cosmos. Did I get that right? Yeah, Jomo Cosmos. Okay, my, my South African is not great. Can you place us back to that time and tell us what it was like to, pr to play professionally at such a young age? my goal was to always play professional soccer and I was fortunate enough to be able to play at a professional stage at a small bout in England as, as a youth apprentice and then came back to South Africa and got to sign for Joma Cosmos. It was interesting, you know, apartheid had just ended at that time. So there was no apartheid. What, what year was that just for reference? That was 91, 92, 92. So 92. Yeah. Around then. Um, and apartheid, I think it ended in 90 or 91. Yeah. But it was interesting what happened, you know, it was, like I said, it was a predominantly black sport, but it was kind of a reverse discrimination that started happening because I was a white player and the teams were predominantly black and they wouldn't play more than two or three whites per game, no matter how well you were playing. Wow. Yeah. I would never even thought of that. Yeah. That's a true story. I mean, and it's still kind of happening in South Africa today. I think, you know, where there's, you know, they're trying to give, you know, you know, the black players a, a, a hand up and I can certainly understand where they're coming from, but as a kid, it taught me a lot about how people perceive things, you know, like I grew up during apartheid, you look what the government in South Africa is going on now and it's like they're corrupt as hell, they're stealing from their own people and, you know, plundering the country. You know, the president's been stealing blind and I'm like, he fought for, he was a freedom fighter for end of apartheid and to be a hero of his people and he's stealing from them, so, you know, so it's interesting how people, when, when you get into power, how things change. How things, yeah. 
there's a quote, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And for those of you that are listening in, in the, uh, the the noises that you're hearing in the background, we're doing it uh, at uh, one of Justin's restaurants. So you're going to hear some rumbling. Uh, please excuse the restaurant noise. But I wanted to do it here because this is his domain. And we're going to get into that in just a, a bit. I want to talk a little bit more about soccer. When you were training in the ghettos, which I'm, I'm assuming grew you up fast and maybe even taught you some street smarts. What would you say were the key lessons learned from being around that level of diversity? I think, in, I mean, growing up in Johannesburg in general, you, I think you grew up street smart. You're always aware of your surroundings. Um, but it definitely opens your eyes to, you know, people thought I was crazy going into these, you know, what we call townships and training and playing. And like, they were like, you're going to get killed. And but I didn't experience that at all. What I experienced was a very warm environment, very welcoming environment. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of bad stuff that was happening. But I mean, I never experienced any of that, thank God. You know, it was very warm and welcoming and it was a great experience. All right. So after soccer, you left South Africa and you played in Europe for a bit. And then you eventually crossed the pond to where we sit today in Atlanta. And you were playing for a team that's no longer here, but was called the Atlanta Silverbacks. That was actually the Ruckus. Okay. Before the, the Silverbacks was the Atlanta Ruckus. Okay. And then came the Silverbacks. Now, is it R-U-C-K-E-R-S, Ruckers? No, R-U-C-K-U-S, Ruckus. Ruckus, like let's make a ruckus. Okay, yeah, got yeah. it. Can you tell me the story of how you decided from playing soccer to getting into the restaurant business. How did that happen? So I had a serious knee injury. Um, I tore my patella tendon and it took me about a year to recover. And to be dead honest with you, I just wasn't the same player after that knee injury. I started becoming what was like a nomad player. So I, I could have gone back to South Africa, maybe Portugal, Turkey, Japan, the States. You know, the States was, I was only supposed to be here for about six months. My knee was bothering me and I just, I realized that I was probably going to have an average career and, you know, travel the world and play in places. But a lot of my friends were signing big contracts in Europe and I kind of, if I didn't want to, if I wasn't going to play at that level at the best, then I didn't want to play. So I looked at the mirror one morning and I was like, I think it's up. So I decided to retire and I was. So this is, this is here in Atlanta. This is in Atlanta. Yeah. And how old were you? I was 22, 23 mm -hmm. and uh, just decided, you know, look, I think I'm going to call it and I didn't know what I was going to do, to be honest with you. I kind of always been entrepreneurial and so the Olympics were here. So I said, you know what, let me just stick around Atlanta and see what's going on. There was a lot of opportunity I felt. And then my other passion was food and wine. My parents are, are you know, phenomenal chefs and cooks and I grew up around it. And when I was homesick in London, I used to go to a South African pub. And it got me through like a lot of like homesick times in London, mixing with expats. There were a lot of South Africans moving to Atlanta specifically in the late nineties. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to open up a little South African restaurant. And so I went from being a professional soccer player to waiting tables and we learned the business from the ground up pretty much while I was looking for a space, brought my parents over and we opened up 10 degrees South, which is the first South African restaurant in the United States actually. And, you know, we kind of, formed this category. There was no such thing as a South Africa. Even in South Africa, there wasn't a South African restaurant. So we took the best of all these popular cuisines and restaurants and created this menu. And we were the first South African restaurant in the States. And, you know, we turned 20 years old this year. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to rewind you back 20 years ago. 
What is a nomad soccer player? I refer to it as nomad. Um, I guess, you know, you get nomad players in all sports, baseball, basketball, probably less so in the NFL, but baseball is a good example where you play in the lower leagues or you play, you get farmed out to another country, but you know, it's not, the money's not as good and the, the team's not as good pretty much. And you know, they kind of farm you out. You're still making a living, but you're not making big money. You're not paying, playing with the best of the best. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of guys that do that and they make a great living, you know, tennis, baseball, um, you know, there's guys I know that, you know, went to play in China, you know, made money, but it wasn't about that for me. Like I wanted to play for the best teams possible. Take me back to when you were recovering from the knee injury. Some people could have said, this is the worst day of my life. My career's over. Um, this is horrible. And went into self-pity, depression, etc. But you didn't. You said it's over and I'm moving on. What do you attribute that psychology to? It's a good question. I think I'm very entrepreneurial. You know, my mom showed me something recently that one of my teachers, like the first grade had, had, had written on my report card and said, looks like something to the effect of, you know, he's going to make a great entrepreneur one day. And this is when I'm like I don't know, six, seven years old, right? And I think that as an entrepreneur, and entrep- you have ups and downs and strong entrepreneurs, they let the losses go. They don't hold on to them. They don't harbor. They don't get depressed about it. They keep moving forward because they know that, you know, when one door closes, there's another one opening and they just keep on pushing forward. And I didn't know that at the time. I mean, it's a good question that you asked that. I've never actually thought about that. But for me, it was just, a, you know, another a new chapter was about to start and I was moving forward. I mean, it was tough. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it, it was not easy to hang up, you know, my, my cleats and be like, hey, that's it. It was, it was a tough thing. I mean, I never touched a soccer ball for about two years. Did you develop a resentment for soccer or did you still embrace the sport? No, I still embrace the sport. I mean, I love the sport. Yeah. So, so that didn't create a sour taste for no, you? No, 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 not at all. Um, was upset seeing my friends and, you know, former players playing in world cups and stuff. I mean, that was kind of, you know, hard, but I was happy for them. And my new life had started and it was like, you know, I became a fan of the sport. So I, lo- I no longer played it. Because when you're playing the sport, you're not really a fan of it. You know, it's like a business. And I became a fan again. And I was okay with that. There is a difference between the two. I love music. I love electronic music. So I learned how to DJ and I started playing at one of the local clubs here in Atlanta, opera. I realized pretty soon into playing that there's a big difference between listening to the music and actually doing the business of that. So I I get that. You mentioned that there were a lot of uh, South Africans who moved to Atlanta, and that's been my experience too. There's, it seems like every time I turn around, I bump into another South African, and I don't think there's a lot of states in America that can say that. Why do you suppose that this is such a place for South Africans to come to? There's different parts of America that are very similar to different parts of South Africa. Atlanta, you'll find a lot of people from Johannesburg because it's very similar in um, topography, climates. The, the people are very warm and hospitable. You know, South Africa has that, as, as a nation, we're very warm and hospitable. You know, if you go to places like Laguna Beach, it reminds me very much of Cape Town. Yeah. You go to Florida, it reminds me of Durban. It's humid, it's hot. And so there's, you know, and South Africans have levitated to different places. There's a lot of South Africans in Southern Florida, Southern California, New York, Dallas, and Atlanta are probably the biggest. But yeah, so I think, you know, some one or two families move and then they tell their friends and they're like, oh, you know, it's a great place and opportunity. And 
Yeah, I grew up in New York and, you know, it seemed like one day uh, it turned into Red Square, like Moscow. You know, I, I grew up in Queens and it was, uh, you're right, one, tell, one friend tells two friends and there they are. Um, okay, you also mentioned uh, waiting tables, which I find really, really interesting because of where, where you are today compared to that. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Why did you decide to wait tables before you opened your first restaurant? And did you have to battle your ego from being uh, a former professional soccer player to now waiting tables? Yeah, I definitely had to battle the ego. It wasn't too difficult for me because I'm a firm believer that if you want to succeed in anything, you have to pay your dues and you have to learn the business. I'd known from experience that you have to, in order to learn the restaurant business, it's probably the most important thing is that you bust and wait tables and you get your hands dirty and you actually learn the business from that perspective. And it was significant. It was so helpful for me in doing that, but it was weird. You know, like people in South Africa were like, what the hell are you doing? Like you're waiting tables, like you're a professional soccer player. I had, I had a good degree from university because in South Africa you could study and play professional. It's not like the States. You could do both. And so it was, it was interesting. It was, it wasn't, it was difficult, but I had an end goal. So it wasn't like, oh, this is my new life. While I was waiting tables, I was looking for locations. I knew what the end goal was, was to open up my first place. And I was learning that while I was going. So while you're waiting tables, you were, the lens that you were looking at the restaurant through was the lens of opening up your own place someday. Yeah. And you, you, were will, you were willing to have the humility. 100% to do it because you knew that that was the way to see it. Correct. All right. So in 98, you opened the first South African restaurant in the U S which by the way is amazing. I mean, the fact that there was no South African restaurant prior to that is incredible. Um, you called it 10 degrees South, which I think is a, uh, if I understand correctly, is a nod to where South Africa, where, where you're from actually is on the map. Is that right? Yeah. But it's taken from the Tropic of Capricorn, not from the actual equator. So when I, when I played, my number was 10 most of the time. I have a thing about the number 10. And when we looked at the map, South Africa sits, I think, 32 degrees south of the equator, but it sits 10 degrees south of the Tropic of Capricorn. So we called it 10 degrees south. It just rolled off the tongue easier. 10 was an important thing to me, and that's why we wow, called it Wow, that's so cool. Never knew that. Okay. If there was no South African restaurant out there, what gave you the belief that it would work, especially here in the deep south where the fanciest we get at that time was probably spicing up grits or deviled eggs how did in the world did you have the nerve balls <laughs> to say these people are going to like south african food what i did know was that south african food was really good and that there were a lot of like any south african that was here at the time we missed a lot of our cuisine and you know, it's not crazy. It's, it's meat, fish, chicken, just spiced differently or, you know, a little, little bit, you know, different flavorings, if you will. And I found the food very bland here at the time. And so I was like, you know what? There were so many South Africans moving here. I said, if they come and enjoy it, they'll bring some American friends and we'll kind of use that as a platform, you know? And everyone thought I was crazy, man. Everyone said like, they gave us three months to six months max. They were like, there's no way. Like, what, like this is 98, right? This is 98. Okay. I mean, there were two sushi restaurants in town at the time. Like, this was a meat and potatoes town. It was like, they were literally like, it's not like today. And people were like, you're crazy. Like, there's no way it's going to work. Like, 
that it's just not, I mean, so they're like, what are they going to think you're serving monkey and giraffe and like you know, joking around, right? <laughs> but hey, man, we, we did it and lo and behold, the South Africans came and we were probably 99% South African in the beginning for the first year and today we're probably 99.9% American. Okay, so the South Africans were the launching pad to bring the Americans in and then now it's mostly American. Why is it not as much South African any longer, do you suspect? We knew the South Africans would come, but you know, South Africans, it's an interesting culture. Like in their opinion, like, you know, we, there's certain dishes, like they would be like, oh, we can make this at home and for less expensive. And we can buy this bottle of wine for cheaper in South Africa, not knowing the dynamics behind, you know, what's actually going on and labor costs and imports and distributors and stuff like that. So, you know, they came and, you know, they still do, but it just flips at some point, you know, it was like, you know, flip that the Americans just really enjoyed the food and, you know, they, there wasn't like a competition or they weren't, they were just enjoying a good restaurant, you know, and that we have a saying, you know, some, some South Africans wish you well, just not too well. <laughs> the Australians have something similar that, have you ever heard of the term, the tall poppy syndrome? No. So the tall poppy syndrome basically, um, and this is, this is throughout the Australian culture, poppy the flower. If you get too big, they whack you down. So in Australia, you know, a, a poppy, if it grows too big, they cut it. So they believe that if somebody gets too full of themselves, they whack them. And they, so they refer to that as the tall poppy syndrome. So Australians always want to be like that same sort of like, not too much. I don't want to wish you too well. That's so interesting. I wish you well, just not better than me. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the pricing in South Africa, and, and I would suppose that you know, I just got back from, uh, from Cape Town myself for New Year's and I was amazed at the pricing differential. I mean, I, I could not believe what dinner and, you know, a bottle is like. So I can imagine that when they come here and have the same food and it's, it's 10 X what they pay there that even, you know, it's even, even though they get that restaurants cost more, that's specifically South African. I get it. Were there any particular teachers that you can point to in the restaurant business or any other business that really impacted your growth? Yeah, so, I mean, initially it's kind of, I mean, it's, there's a few people had an impact. Um, initially, I would say my parents, you know, their hard work and ethic and, you know, and, and their commitments at picking up and leaving their country, their home country. I mean, my father was in his late 40s, packed up everything, their whole life and, you know, moved here on a, basically a woman, what I was telling him, you know, we were going to do. So, you know, he had the courage and, and, and the guts to do that, him and my mom, my mom and worked really hard. The next person would be when my wife came into our lives because she is an established and very talented interior designer. And we were kind of like a, you know, very kitschy safari tablecloths. And it was like kind of a sports bar in the back. And it was kind of like, it was very uh, hole in the wall-ish, if you will. 10 degrees. 10 degrees. Interesting. Cause it, Cause it is not that way now. No, but she took us, you know, over the years, she's taken us to different levels and we've gone through some major renovations, but she took us to those, like she actually pushed us to like, say, Hey, you know, we can do better than this. We can do better. We can do better. And then from a business point of view, a gentleman by the name of Lou Ashcraft was a big influence on me, a mentor, just a very, very smart businessman and taught me a lot about business and setting up of companies and taxes and, you know, just from a business. And to this day, I'll still call him if I have any business questions. Um, and then from a restaurant point of view, uh, Vic Brandstetter, who was the, one of the original owners and founders of Houston's Hillstone group. And Vic had a big impact on me. Um, 
just from a restaurant point of view of the way that they looked at things at Houston's and their consistency. And, you know, he was very influential in, in teaching me a lot of things that I probably wouldn't have looked at that way, but they, they were very successful, still are very, very successful, but he, they have a way of looking at things that I probably wouldn't have looked at and taught me a lot, you know, gave me the confidence to when, when I was in doubt, you know, push through, it might not make sense now, but the end goal, it'll make sense in, in the long run where I probably would have cut and run at that point on certain things. And then I've joined an entrepreneurial group, YEO, which is now EO, and uh, it's an entrepreneurial organization. And I joined that, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so. And, you know, I had a forum and we had a really, really rock star forum. And we still, you know, we still meet once a month and very, very influential people that kind of served as my board of directors, if you will. So I could, all, no, nobody in the restaurant business, but I could bounce things off them if, you know, we were looking at leases, or opening a new restaurant and just smart people. So always try and smart, surrounded myself with smart people, you know, wherever possible. I want to unpack a few things that you said just for clarity. Um, what did your parents do? What kind of work did they do in South Africa? Uh, so my mom was actually a secretary and assistant to one of the biggest uh, fish companies in the world. And my father was an uh, entrepreneur. So he owned a bunch of video stores. He was an investor in some restaurants, was a book, bookmaker at one point, like on horse, you know, horses and just very much entrepreneurial all around. Had, had was dabbled in a lot of different businesses. But they were self-taught cooks and basically our house was like a restaurant four days and nights a week. Family and friends would start coming around on a Thursday and leave like Monday morning. It was just constant every single weekend, you know, they would be cooking and doing that kind of thing, you know. So I grew up around that kind of environment and that's what 10 Degrees South became, a very much a neighborhood. It became our house, if you will, and very much a neighborhood feel. And I think that's what really you know, endeared us to Atlanta and, you know, the locals, you know, it was, it became their spot, kind of like a cheers. Well, listen, I mean, with, with parents that were into cooks and entrepreneurship, there's no, there's no doubt where you came from. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. Okay. When did you meet your wife? I met my wife in 99. So the restaurant had been open about a year and we met at the bar at 10 degrees. So. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Okay. I want to talk to her. I want to talk to you about her in just a minute, but I want to, I want to wrap up a few questions on the restaurant. In 2012, you expanded and you opened your next restaurant, which was Yebo Beach House. And in 2015, you opened your next, next restaurant called Cape Dutch. And then 2016, I'm running out of next, next. So I'm just going to say Biltong Bar. And they were all more variations on your South African concept. What's the advantage to expanding to multiple locations versus just keeping everything under one roof? My biggest goal when I, when I opened 10 Degrees South was I wanted to spread South African cuisine and food and wine all around the country. I want people to know about this beautiful country and the cuisine. And so, you know, we've always been looking at LA, New York, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we've come close a couple of times to opening those locations, but it's very difficult when you go out of state. It's hard enough when you're in, like when you're close to home. And, you know, I've had a couple of eureka moments. And, you know, one of them was then when I decided things just weren't going smoothly in terms of opening up in other locations like LA or New York. And I was like, you know what? Why not Atlanta? Atlanta's growing. And three years ago, it's, it started really growing fast. And I was like, there's other parts of Atlanta, you know, that probably never come to 10 degrees south or never been there. And Yebo presented itself and people, 
really took to that restaurant and it was in the mall, which, you know, got a lot of people that we probably would never have got and they enjoyed the cuisine. And then just decided, you know, different concept. We wanted to open up different concepts that were related to South Africa and when opportunities presented itself, but we ended up opening three restaurants in six months, which is unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'll ever do that again, but it was very stressful and it was tough, but you know, thank goodness, you know, it's, it's not about only, it's about the team that you have with you as well. And, you know, we've got a good team and smart people and hardworking people and we were able to do it, you know. What were the key lessons learned in opening up three restaurants in six months? Don't ever do it, man. <laughs> do, don't, don't, don't do it is, is the first don't answer. Do, yeah, that's the uh-huh. first answer. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about not doing it? Don't do it because... Don't do it in that short of time frame just because it spreads you thin. So when you open one and then you go and you get everything together and then the next one's coming online, so you're leaving a few cracks behind that you probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have left. We were able to power through, but it wasn't easy. It was tougher than it should have been if we had given a little bit more of a, of a gap. You know? Why did you do it? That's the way the cards laid out. We, we had signed on to do, it wasn't supposed to be like that, Got but it. with the construction delays, with an opportunity that came, it just ended up that way. Got it. But yeah, it definitely wasn't planned. You had, to, you had to take what was revealing itself at the time. 100%, yeah. So having key management in place allows these restaurants to thrive when you're not there. In every one of these restaurants that I've been in, your management team has blown me away. And that's not by accident. There's strategy there. So what would you say are the key ingredients to hiring a good manager to run things? Because you can't be everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, that was the biggest thing. I've always been the face of the brand, if you will, the face of 10 Degrees South. I mean, I was the bartender. People didn't know I owned the restaurant for the first seven or eight years. I was the bartender at 10 Degrees South, literally. I still owned the restaurant, but I mean, I was, I was working it. And I became the face. And that was, that's tough when you become the face of something because people expect to see you there every single day. So when you expand out, that was the toughest part of expanding, actually. But we look to, you know, the managers that we look to hire, or, you know, personalities, people that, that are strong enough and have a personality that can interact with people that can be engaging and kind of have the energy that's required of what I expect for a restaurant because restaurants aren't anymore just about great food or great service. It's about an experience and that experience starts with energy. And if you have a a very strong, warm energy when you enter a space, I think that's very, very important. So I look to things like that, you know, you know, more so than I do to their experience in the restaurant industry. Because you can hire anybody off the street to serve a table, but we try and hire personalities because I think that's a very, very key part to the experience. How do you assess a good personality or not? In other words, in the beginning, I'm sure when you met somebody, you said, oh, this guy's got a great personality, but then after a couple of weeks, you went, okay, I was wrong. It's not what I thought it was gonna be. And I'm sure now you're really good when somebody comes in at knowing the kind of personality. So how did you get good, I guess is the question, at assessing a good personality in a moment? It's interesting, you know, when I was at university, I studied psychology. And it's interesting how psychology, I majored in psychology and minored in economics. But psychology has helped me a lot more than the economics has in running a business and running restaurants because you're dealing with psyche of not only employees, but guests and situations that arise all the time. Thank goodness I've, already, I've, I've really always been good at judging people from like first meets, you know, kind of thing. And have I always been right? Probably not. But 
most most often than not, I get a sense of, you know, their vibe and, you know, what they're about and just simple things. You know, you'll ask a simple question and see what their answer is. You know, you know, are they look are they in it just for the money or they, you know, they're in it for a career? You know, what's their path? And all these things work. It just depends where you're gonna fit them in, right? Because as you grow as a company, you have to it's becoming business became my sport and like so this is my so this is my soccer team, if you will, and I'm coaching the best of my ability, putting these people in the best positions that are best for them, you know, in the hopes that we succeed. And it's nothing, it's the exact same thing as running a sports team. You know, you put the best players, you know, not everyone can be the quarterback. And, you know, somebody that's good enough to be that quarterback, you try and put them in that position or, you know, wide receiver, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I very much look at it like sport, to be honest with you. Are there any particular questions that are you go-to questions when assessing hiring somebody, manager or otherwise? You know, where do you see yourself three years from now? Mm-hmm. So a vision question. Vision question. Um, what are your expectations? So more than that, you're looking for the answers that they're, that you're getting to the question. So you're, you're looking for a, a sort of a visceral reaction based on the question that you ask. We're looking for a vision. You're looking for a vision. An overall picture of a vision because ultimately that tells you why that person's there. And not everyone's the same. You know, so we get college kids in here that are trying to get degrees. We get people that are, you know, this is a stopgap for them to launch their career. I mean, but we just didn't know where they're at so that you can put them in that position because you, the last thing you want to do is find a rock star and rely on that rock star when that rock star is going to be moving on to something different. And that's happened to us in the past. Got it. So you're, you're okay with somebody saying, Hey, look, this is something I need for a year or two while I'm on oh, to yeah. X. And as long as we know, I was like, when I was waiting tables, I was always honest with the owner. Like, I mean, one of the guys that had an influence on me was Jacques Hotel, which was, he was the chef owner of this French restaurant that I worked at. But I was honest from day one. I mean, I was like, Hey man, I'm here and I'll work my ass off for you, but I'm opening my own restaurant. Like he was like, cool. Just, was be like, on, cool yeah. just be honest with and me. He was like, I mean, he, he was, he, you know, he was all about it. And he, you know, so let me know if you need to look at location. I mean, he was, he was very, but I think, it, I think you get into, you never want to burn bridges, right? Like, and I'm still good friends with Jacques today and, you know, the people that I worked with, but as long as you're honest, I mean, I understand not everyone's on the same path, you know what I mean? But I have to do what's best for the company and, and the people around the company that are on their long-term path. Yeah. I love the idea of a sports team. I love how you're just putting people, you're, you're not going to put this person as the quarterback, but you're going to put that person as the quarterback. So that's, you sort of, it's a great visual for how you put people in. The problem, the problem comes in is when somebody thinks they're a quarterback (laughs) (laughs) and you don't put them as a quarterback. That's where, and that's where the managing people comes in because everybody wants to be quarterback, right? Uh-huh. Everybody wants to be Matt Ryan. That's interesting. Okay. So people see someone from like a TV show, Top Chef, uh, open a restaurant and they say, Hey, I can do that. It's not that hard. But what they don't realize is the years that are put in to get you where you are today, let's say. Can you tell me how consistency and standards are guiding principles for you? I'm glad you brought this point up because it's been coming up a lot, especially in our industry, social media and Instagram and top chefs and all these shows have made it very, very difficult in our industry because a lot of these kids or people that are getting into the industry, not even kids, I mean, even like grown adults that want to get into this industry, they watch a show like Top Chef or they watch these shows and they just think like, oh, I can do that. Like, it's easy. And what they don't realize is, you know, the Bobby Flays of the world and these guys that are doing all these things, they've paid their dues. They've had their own restaurants for many, many years. Um, it's not just overnight sensation. There's no such thing as overnight success unless you catch the lotto. I mean, I don't know of any entrepreneur out there that's done really 
really well and has been really successful on a big level that didn't pay their dues. You know, someone might say Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, but he worked on that thing for how many years? Many, many, many years. A lot of, you know, ups and downs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't just overnight, oh, he's a billionaire. That took a long time. And anybody that I know successful has, you know, worked really, really hard. In our industry, it's caused an issue because all of a sudden you think you make a dish and you take a photograph of it, now you're a chef. And like people don't realize like to be a good chef and to be a, you know, a good GM, you have to put in hours and you have to pay your dues. I mean, that's just the way it is. And unfortunately, a lot of these guys, they see it and they think, oh, that's easy. I can do that. You know, and they open up their own restaurants and they lose a lot of money. And it just doesn't work that way. Well, I mean, that's, that's certainly evident in the fact that, uh, what, what, what would you say is the percentage of restaurants that make it versus don't make it? I don't know what the exact percentages are now, but I mean, a lot more don't make it than mm-hmm. make it for sure. I think it's pretty high. It might even be like six out of 10. Do you view yourself as a restaurateur or think of yourself as more being in the entertainment business? Entertainment business for sure. Really? Yeah. Okay. We talked a little bit about uh, sports psychology with, uh, well, we talked about psychology, but, you know, a lot of sports psychologists use the power of visualization and meditation, as I'm sure you did when you were playing soccer. How has, if it has, your meditation slash visualization practice changed or evolved now that you're in the restaurant business? So in other words, did you do things a certain way? in that regard when you were playing sports and uh, did it carry over or is it different now? It's different. How so? When I was playing, it was more of a long-term goal meditation. I would think about a game a week out, visualize myself scoring a goal, how that game was going to go, how I was going to perform. Was I going to make the national team in six months from that time? How was I going to play in a tournament? So it was a lot more future out broadcast. The restaurant business is very difficult to do that. You can do that from a concepting point of view and be like, okay, we're going to try and open up X amount of Biltong bars, you know, in three years. And these are the places we want to be. But the restaurant business has taught me that every single day is different. Literally, it's a living organism. So you can plan, you know, the fa- I love my, uh, Mark Tyson saying, you know, everyone has a plan until he gets smacked in the face. And that's a true, like the restaurant business is very much that. So I've learned that you can't, you don't have a magic ball and you don't, nobody can see into the future. So I don't, we plan very well from a broad perspective, but in terms of the nuances of like actual specific goals, we take it day by day and, you know, we just, we know that we can, we set ourselves up for success, but it's different from when like you're meditating on, I'm going to score a goal a week from now. You can't do that in the restaurant business because every day is different. You know, you can wake up and say, well, tomorrow we're going to try and be really smooth and really successful and we're going to do a good job. You can say, I'm going to open up a restaurant six months from now, but that's even taught me when you're relying on contractors and permits and stuff like that, that pretty much never happens according to the exact. So you can, you can do it on a broad level, but you can't be specific to a date. So you can't control for the variables. There are too many variables, like all of the people that are in the restaurants or the, you know, every every day is, I'm assuming, tell me if I'm getting this right. Every day is different in the restaurant industry because of the people that are in the restaurant or because of the, the waiters and the waitresses that are there or something different. Why is every day different? All of the above. I'll give you an example. Two days ago, you know, we have a, a leak outside the restaurant. We come to find out there's a, there's a main water line break, which leads to all of a sudden now we find out the plumber says, oh, and by the way, the pressure valve's broken. There's too much PSI coming to the building and your water heater 
is shot. It's leaking. So you're not planning on that right now. This is a capital outlay. You're not planning on that capital outlay. Then at the exact same time, you're opening up for service. You've got to get water to the building. You've got to make sure everyone's ready and set up. We've just switched over from ski house to beach house. It's a new menu. Everyone's still trying to get to know that new menu and perfect that new menu and learn that new menu. And this is all in one day. But nobody was planning on the, on the, on the water. Like, it's bad enough that you've got to worry about the switch, but now you've got all this water issue. And so those are the kind of things that happen often, more often than people realize. So in other words, you can, you can visualize for the big things that you want. Maybe it's opening another restaurant, but you have to have some wiggle room in how that happens. Uh, yeah, I equate it to riding a wave, like if you body surf, or if you're even on a surfboard, every wave is different. You're not going to ride that same exact wave. Some are smooth and you're going to ride it well, but some will dump you into the, you know, into the surf. And it's the exact same thing. You just got to know that you ride that wave as it comes. And that's very much how the restaurant business is because every day is different. Literally every single day, something will come up. A health inspector will walk in when you're not planning. You know, you might have a customer that's uh, been overserved or, you know, you know, unhappy or uh, it's just every day is different. People are celebrating things and, you know, when people are celebrating, you want to make sure they have the best celebration. When they're down, you want to pick them up. You know, you've got staff that might not arrive for work. Now you've got to juggle that situation. And so there's, there's, there's a lot of moving variables. Is that something that you had to get good at accepting or is that in your personality? For example, that would drive me crazy. I thrive on predictability and certainty and things being the same. I'm a little old man in that in that regard, but some people, they love the variety of something new every day. W which one of those two are you? I like the variety. I like the spontaneity. I like, I, th I think that's why I've, I've been in this business as long as I have, because sure. I, because I really enjoy that. You never know what net tomorrow is going to bring. That's very much my personality. And I like that spontaneity, but not, not everyone's like it. Like, you know, to your point, some people are very, very set in their ways. And I have like, I have a rule, you know, it's an 80-20 rule, if you will. You know, uh, Sarah Blakely from Spanx actually taught me that, that rule. And she was like, as long as like we're doing 80%, we're doing a good job. Because you can't be everywhere and you can't do everything. But the second you drop below that 80%, now you've got a problem. And, you know, you, you strive for 100%, but not everybody can do everything 100%. And there comes in that unpredictability of, you know, the water main breaking and things are happening around you. How can you perform at 100%? It's impossible. Yeah. When there's outside Outside factors are always going to come into situations, especially in business and in the restaurant business. So you do the best you can and you strive for, you know, 80, 90 of, of the hundred. You mentioned beach house and ski house. So the restaurant that we're sitting in right now is called Yebo. What does Yebo mean, first of all? Yebo means yes in Zulu. And Zulu is one of the proudest and you know, oldest South African tribes. I'm sure you've heard of Shaka Zulu. Yeah. Who was a king. Of the Zulus and Zulu is a very Yebo means very like it's, it's an affirmation like yes and so we called the restaurant Yebo when we were at the mall it was just Yebo restaurant and bar and when we moved to our new location which we're at now we felt like the, the space felt kind of like a beach house if you will and we wanted to change up the menu and you know be creative about it so we ended up calling it Yebo beach house and then what we realized was when winter came Atlanta loves the beach in summer, but in the winter, they love going to Aspen and Vail and skiing. And we watched our sales slowly, slowly starting to dip as we were getting into the colder, you know, weeks. And I was like, this isn't going to work. Like we need to do something fast because we're going to be crickets here during, you know, during the winter. 
So we flipped it and we became literally the very first official pop-up restaurant in Atlanta. And we flipped it for the winter months to ski house. So we changed all the furniture, the menu, etc. The surfboards came down, the skis went up. And we changed the concept and, you know, it became Yebo Ski House. And then what we found was people really enjoyed that and they, they loved it. And, you know, we'd have ski parties and we'd do the shot skis and people really, really loved that. And so we did that. And then what we found was, well, the next beach house then has to be different from the first beach house. So the decor has to change. The first beach house was Hamptons inspired. So it was like more of that Hamptons vibe. And the first ski house was Aspen inspired. The next beach house was Southern California, Venice Beach inspired. And the next ski house was more of the Swiss Alps. So like the menu changes, the look and the feel and the whole situation changes. But it's like setting up, it's like opening a new restaurant because you have to plan weeks and weeks out. You have to do the menus with the chefs. You have to do the, the new drinks and wine list with the, with the beverage director. And you, the, the designer has to find new stuff. And, you know, you have to, and it's like opening a new restaurant. It's like a three-day many long hours, weeks of planning, and then a three-day flip. Why do you have to, every year, change the ski and the beach vibe? Because restaurants don't typically change their decor at all. But if, you're, if you haven't had that decor for six months, let's say, why does it need to be, and I know it doesn't need to be, but why did you choose for it to be different, a different beach? I'm in the entertainment business. Got it. Got it. That's what I thought you were going to say. Fascinating. Um, I, I can tell you this, that my wife has had um, many nights of doing shot skis. And for those of you that don't know what shot skis are, um, imagine a ski that has little holders for shots on it. And uh, Justin will throw some shots in the ski and all of the people will get together in a line and do the shot while the shot glass is tied into the ski. So this man is in the entertainment business. So your wife has um, a lot to do with the design of this place. I think all of it, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'd like to talk a little bit about working together with your spouse. Your wife designs all your restaurants. Um, you guys, like you said, flip them from beach house to ski house. My wife and I can argue over the color of a website. Should that be purple? Should that be green? How, or maybe better stated is what strategies do you have that have allowed each of you to work together and stay in your respective lanes without killing each other? So I'm a firm believer in staying in your lane. You know, I try and teach my people all the time, you know, to be successful, I think everybody has to stay in your lane. You're swimming a swimming race and somebody goes out of their lane, it's a chaos, right? It's no difference in business. So I stay in my lane. She's an interior designer. She knows what looks good and what doesn't. She will listen to my proposed vision, if you will. You know, if I say, hey, I want to do a beach house and I will say, you know, maybe put some surfboards up and then, you know, she'll be like, okay, well, what kind of a beach house? So, you know, we're talking Malibu or we're talking like Cape Town. And then once we've decided on that, I let her do her thing. Like I don't, she will ask me what I think about certain things, but I never get involved in her space. I will never come in and be like, no, I don't like that light fixture or why are we doing that? I let her do her thing. And I think that's why we work well together. You know, she lets me do my thing when it comes to the restaurants and the food and the wine. We call her QC though, which is quality control because she does see things differently. As a designer, she has a certain eye for things, the way a plate should look or the way certain things should look. And I think everybody in our company respects that. And, you know, I just see so many times people, they'll hire a designer, for example, and then they're trying to tell the designer what to design. 
And then, well, why the hell did you hire the designer? Just do it yourself, if that's the case. You know what I mean? Like, the designer will put up a silver chandelier, and the next thing the owner's like, no, I don't like that. I'm putting a gold, which makes no sense. But they hired a designer for, for a reason, you know? And I've grown to trust her, you know, obviously because I think she has phenomenal taste. You know, it's easy for people to assume that you hit home runs all the time. Can you tell me about a particular down period or challenging period if you're open to it um, and what you did to get yourself back on your feet, maybe the decisions that you made to get back on firm ground? Is there anything that comes to mind in that area? Yeah, for sure. Um, I opened up a sports bar just before the economy went haywire. It was a great location and I didn't want to be any sports bar. We wanted to do a really cool, fine dining sports bar, if you will, where we served great steaks and a great bottle of wine while watching the game. And we took off really, really strong. I mean, really strong. And it was great. And I, was, I had plans. I'm going to open up 10 of these things. I mean, it's a home run. And then the economy tanked. And all of a sudden, we went from selling fine, fine bottles of silver oak to dollar drafts. And the clientele changed and everything about what we were trying to do changed. And then football season ended. And then it was like, there's nobody here. And we changed, we did like, we, you know, we made it a music venue, you know, during the summer and we tried really hard and, you know, we weren't losing money, but we weren't making money and it didn't look like we were going to be making money anytime soon. And I'd invested a lot of money into it of my own money. And I was just, I just didn't see it working. I, I wanted to concentrate on something that would work. And so, you know, we closed, we closed, we had been open for... I think a year, just over a year. And it lost a lot of money. Every single person was like, oh my God, you must be devastated. You must be this. And I'll be honest with you. I, I never, ever, like if you didn't even bring that up, I've never thought about it. Like I woke up the next morning and it was onto the next, it was like, let's keep it moving. Like, you know, I'll make up the money somewhere else and let's focus on, you know, the future and what we're going to do. And I never, ever thought about it, to be honest with you. It, like it was just, you know, it was, hey, let's just keep it moving. It's, do you think it comes from the sports background where some games you win and some you just yeah, don't? I think, I think that definitely helps for sure. You know, you can't cry about the past. I mean, it is what it is. You know? And I know a lot of people that would not maybe have the confidence or they, you know, they'd be depressed about it. Me and my wife did not, like we didn't even bat an eyelid. Like it was like, let's keep it moving. Let's move on. The podcast that we're doing here is called Work Hard, Play Hard, right? So we just talked about work hard and I want to move into the play hard section of the show of the show, which I define as really anything that's outside of work. We spend a lot of time on work, not a lot of time on play. Playing hard really looks different for everybody. And I want to talk a little bit about what it looks like for you. You know, in doing these interviews with people, I kind of thought that I would just talk about the work hard part of their life and the play hard part of their life. But what I really determined is that a lot of the entrepreneurs that I'm talking to really don't have much of a play hard part of their life. It's mostly dominated by work. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this with you is because I don't, I don't suspect that that's the case with you. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that. If you had a magic wand, can you describe what play hard looks like for you? Traveling to, for lack of a better word, an exotic destination like Cape Town, South Africa, having a, a phenomenal vacation, touring wineries, and I use South Africa as an example just because I love Cape Town, but I mean, whether it be Napa Valley or, you know, St. Bart's or traveling to like really cool places, Mykonos, you and I have discussed before, just really cool places and, you know, being able to relax and enjoy. I'm fortunate in my life that, you know, I've been able to do those things. The play hard for me doesn't happen often because 
the business I'm in, I'm never on vacation. If I'm, even if I'm in Mykonos, I'm thinking about, oh, I need to open up a Greek restaurant. Like, that's just how I'm wired. So I'm always on. I'm always doing R&D, no matter where I am in the world. One of my favorite places to go, like a lot of people, you know, they love going to the beach and just relaxing, reading a book. My way of relaxing is going to New York City and going to five restaurants in one day. That's how I, that's what I, that's what really gets me going and like really, like I enjoy it. It, it takes my mind off everything. And it's literally R&D, but I just love being in a city like that that's got great energy and where I can learn something because I feel like if I'm just sitting on a beach, not doing anything, I'm not learning mm-hmm. and I'm just not wired that way. Yeah, but that is play hard, right? I mean, that's the point. Everybody has a different version of it. So what would you say is the biggest block or challenge or struggle that you have now putting play into your life? Expansion. We're expanding our Biltong Bar concept. And so it's difficult to plan trips around when we, we do a lot of trips that are last minute. We're lucky we don't have kids. So that, that allows us to you know, literally pick up and leave it overnight or whenever we want. But when, you, when you're planning out building restaurants and stuff, it's not that easy because you don't know, you know, you can't just say, hey, I'm going to go to Mykonos for three weeks or whatever the case may be. So that blocks us a little bit, but we're going to a wedding in Key West next weekend and that'll be a fun, you know, little getaway. And, but I haven't, I mean, the first vacation I took in many, many, many years was three years ago when I went to South Africa and I hadn't been home for 13 years. So I ended up going for the month of February and what it did come, I, that's when I came back and opened three restaurants. Like I was so fired up when I came yeah. back, you know, so it was actually, it was a good trip. It was a vacation, but I, I came back and opened up three restaurants. If you could take an all expenses paid trip, any place that's on your bucket list, um, with or without your wife, where would you go and why? Cape Town. Really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, a lot of people talk about their morning routine, but I'm more interested in your evening wind down routine. What's that look like? Yeah. So it's difficult to, to wind down when you come back from an energized restaurant setting, but you know, typically come home, walk the dog, you know, kind of unwind. Sometimes, you know, often I have to check emails after service. It's interesting today's day and age, you're not only getting emails, you're getting texts, but then you're also getting Facebook messages, Instagram messages. Hey, can you make me a reservation? Hey, I want to book a party, blah, 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 you know? So it's very difficult to switch off completely, but kind of try and before getting to the house, try and like while I'm walking the dog, just finish that up. Might go on social media for fun, if you will, and scroll through and see if I've missed anything. And you know, what are you guys up to? Like what are, what are people up to, you know, get caught up. I actually get to learn a lot of social media, you know, like about restaurants opening and stuff that I wouldn't actually know what was going on. So catch up on news and, you know, what's going on in the world. And then, um, yeah, just hopefully, you know, if we've got a show that, you know, we're into or we're watching, then, you know, kind of put it on and, and that's it. All right. Your next show, if you haven't watched it, is Ozark. Have you seen Ozark? It's freaking amazing. You, you know, they film it up here on Lake Lanier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My buddy was actually in it. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we are going to go through a, uh, our final rapid-fire rounds. Feel free to answer these as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's kind of like a first thing that comes to mind question. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Being able to connect people. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Not being able to find enough people to fill our restaurants. What do people never ask you but you wish they did? To go on more vacations. What's one regret that you have? 
Too many to mention. <laughs> What's the one thing that you want to get better at? My job. Are there any particular book or books that you've reread? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Prophet by Khalil Gibran. It's a poetry book, but I think it teaches a lot about life. The Tower of Pooh, which is kind of like how Winnie Pooh sees the world. Well, I never heard of either of these books. Wow. Yeah. Do you have anything else that hits you? Relentless is a great book. Um, and Living with a Seal by Jesse Itzler. Yeah, that we'll have to do a part two. I know you're friends with, uh, with Jesse Itzler and uh, the seal story that he put in the book is amazing. His new book's coming out, Living with a Monk. So he went to live with, in a monastery for a month with monks. I, I mean, I just, you know, this is, this is absolutely incredible. He would actually be good for this podcast. We gotta, get, we gotta get him on the podcast. What's the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but probably never will? My pajamas. What's the one app on your phone other than Facebook and Instagram that you can't live without? The wine app, Delectable. Delectable, I never heard of it. So you snap a picture of a wine label uh -huh. and it tells you all about the wine, the wine and okay. how, how much it costs and et cetera. Okay, I've got one called Vivino that does the same, same thing, thing, but yeah, is it yeah. the same principle? Same principle. Best advice for your 20-year-old self? Move to America. Final question. If you had to do a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could be on anything that you like to do or anything that you have a passion for, what would it be? Connecting people. This has been awesome. That's it. Thank you so much, Justin. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? No, not at all. It was a pleasure to do this, and uh, I hope everyone understands my crazy accent. Are you kidding me? That's what's gonna. That's what's going <laughs> to sell this thing. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.